Joining us now in the program is someone we've been meaning to have on for quite some time. Dr. Gary Wintemute is a professor of epidemiology here at UC Davis. He's done a recent study regarding gun shows and what they contribute to uh, the gun violence in America. He's here today to talk to us about that and uh, other things related to gun violence in America. Welcome to Radio Parallax, Dr. Gary Wintemute. Doug, how you doing? We're doing okay. What's, uh, what's the deal with this study? We were interested in finding out, as you said, um, how big a problem guns shows were in terms of furnishing guns for criminal use. And we also wanted to get a handle on whether California's regulations work. Uh, California regulates gun commerce in general and also regulates gun shows in particular lots more than other states do. How freely available are guns at gun shows? It depends on where you look. Uh, The main finding of our study was that the regulations here in California work. Um, If you go to a gun show in California, uh, guns are very readily available. The shows are are bustling events. But in order to buy a gun, you have to go through a background check. There's paperwork done. um, A record is kept. But if you go across the border to Arizona or Nevada, uh, gun sales are undocumented, anonymous, no questions asked. You can just walk up, offer some cash to somebody, they can give you their gun, and you walk away. I imagine gun shows are a way you can circumvent whatever regulations are present. That's right. Whatever regulations are present in California, in any case. In fact, uh, at a couple of shows in Reno where nothing else was going on in the neighborhood but the gun show, the only reason for a car to be in the parking lot was because the person was attending the gun show. Um, Almost a third of the cars were were from California. We can only speculate from from that, but it's a reasonable speculation that people are crossing the border and buying items that they can't buy here. Well, as I recall, about 15 years ago, I attended a gun show and actually came away with a rifle. What what are the guns that are causing trouble from gun shows? Well, as you say, again, it, it depends on, um, on how specific you want to get. On balance, it's clear that handguns figure disproportionately in crime. Um, but these days, one of the important functions that gun shows sadly serve, um, particularly those in Arizona, it appears, is arming narcotics traffickers. And they like rifles. They buy AK-47s or AR-15s, which are the civilian knockoff of the the rifle type. Can you buy AK-47s legally in America? Oh, sure. Um, You can't buy them in California, but you can buy them in Arizona or Nevada. California is one of very few states to to still have a ban on so-called assault weapons. The, The federal ban expired some time ago. So in essence, someone can go over to Nevada, Arizona, and take away the same kind of weapon you'd see in Afghanistan. That's right, with a a small but I think important difference. By and large, the weapons that you buy here are what are called semi-automatic. The gun fires one time and automatically reloads uh, to fire again each time you pull the trigger. But you have to pull the trigger each time you want to fire one round. A fully automatic uh, weapon like those we see in Iraq, pull the trigger, hold it down, and the gun will empty itself. My understanding, though, is that, that people in America in the know and doesn't take that much expertise are able to convert them with a, with a kit. Is that, is that so? That's correct. Yeah. The kits are also illegal. Uh, instructions on how to make the parts for the kits are not, and they're easy to find. All right. Well, you, you've worked, I guess, tw- 20 years at this point, Dr. Winnemute, in the, in the ER and, and here in Sacramento. What kind of things do you see as a consequence of, of gun violence? 
unfortunately, Sacramento has not as yet become a major player uh, in in the Saturday Night Gun Club, uh, and that may happen as rates of violence turn up again, as they are as they are beginning to do. Um, I got involved in this, though, as as lots of others in emergency medicine did, out of the knowledge that the vast majority of people who die after being shot never get a crack at medical care. The, the wounds are fatal and they die where they were shot. So if we wanted to make inroads into the number of people who died from gun violence, we needed to prevent them from getting shot in the first place. I don't know what the stats are for, for Saturday night, uh, having been an intern at the Med Center so many years back, but it seems to me that talking to people that were in anesthesia and, and such that when people are going to the OR on a Saturday night, uh, an awful lot of them are young males, uh, gunshot wound victims. Yes. Um, whether it's gunshots or knives or, for that matter, motor vehicle trauma, uh, weekend nights uh, tend to be heavy on trauma, and young males are at risk for trauma of all types. Gun control is a perennial issue here in America. Dr. Winnemey, what would you like to see in regards to some reasonable controls uh, in the future? Well, some good starts are being undertaken, actually, as we speak. Uh, in the wake of the Virginia Tech tragedy, a measure is moving through Congress that has bipartisan support, has NRA support, um, to improve the sort of data that are used for background checks. Uh, background checks prior to gun purchase are only as good as the data they're performed on, and there are lots of holes, and there seems to be general agreement that those those holes need to be plugged. That's a good start. Um, I think, and lots of others do too, that we need to go further and require a background check for all gun purchases. Uh, you and I talked about this a little bit. We basically have a dual system for buying guns in the United States. If you buy from a licensed gun dealer, you have to show identification and fill out a form, and there's a background check, and here in California there's a, a waiting period. Um, in most states, you can legally buy a gun from another private party, and as we talked about, those sales are completely anonymous, completely undocumented, and completely legal. And the vast majority of the general public, and for that matter, the majority of gun owners and NRA members, agree that we should have background checks, at least for all handgun sales. Are, are people buying guns on, on Craigslist and eBay? I can't tell you specifically about uh -huh. Craigslist and eBay, but it is possible to buy guns on the Internet, both legally and illegally. Um, I can legally purchase a gun from a dealer who lives in another state, and that dealer ships the gun to a dealer here in California, and I do the and I do the paperwork, and it's all perfectly okay. It's also become clear that the internet has opened up gun trafficking, illegal sales, just as it has opened up so much of commerce of other types. You know, on this program a couple of months back, we talked to uh, Dr. Bill Durston about his essay in the Sacramento News and Review, where he addressed um, sort of the perception people have about the Second Amendment and how it gets twisted around a bit. How do you address that issue when people say, look, we have an amendment that says we have a right to bear arms? Some people say that's more about uh, a right to have an, uh, a militia for like a National Guard. Well, what do you say to people that, that, that bring that up? I say I honestly don't know what the answer is. Um, experts in constitutional law disagree on this, and some of the country's leading experts in constitutional law have actually changed their minds and gone from one camp to the other. What, what I'm aware of is this, that 
whether we're talking about a collective right or an individual right, no one believes that this is a right that cannot reasonably be circumscribed. So for the sake of the argument, let's assume that we have consensus that there is an individual right to gun ownership, just as there is an individual right to free speech. As it was once famously put, no man has the right to shout fire in a crowded theater. Rights are subject to reasonable circumscription, uh, and that would be the case with an individual right to bear arms if such a right is found to exist. Well, uh, the gun industry is certainly influential in this country, the NRA, etc. They've bottled up an awful lot of potential legislation. Do you think that uh, we're going to see some surmounting of that? Well, in the short run, we'll we'll at least see movement ahead on areas where there can be compromise. Um, I'm less optimistic in the short run uh, about moving forward on matters that the NRA opposes. What's missing, I think, is the sort of focus and commitment on the side of those who advocate reform that is clearly present on the side of those who would like to keep things where they are or, for that matter, roll things back. It's interesting to see that if you look at polling data, most gun owners support the sorts of measures that are generally characterized as a as a gun control agenda. But they're convinced that the so-called anti-gunners, as they see them, will stop nowhere, want to take away all their guns. I, I don't know anybody who actually intends on doing that, but the National Rifle Association has been able to convince people that that's the case and thereby strip away support from even reasonable measures. It's going to take time. Well, Dr. Garen Wintemute, we thank you for speaking with us and hope that you can uh, join us again on Radio Parallax in the future because I know this is an issue that's not going to go away. It's been a pleasure. You know, this is a good point, I think, to talk about uh, an excerpt from one of our favorite sources for this radio program, the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Series. For this, we owe a debt of thanks to atmospheric scientist Dr. Tony Held, formerly here of UC Davis, who first alerted us to this excellent series some years back. This item comes from one of the earlier uh, installments of the series, the number eight. This was titled The Ultimate Bathroom Reader. And as I commence this, I would ask you the question, does this constitute a conspiracy? Because, you know, the term conspiracy theory, conspiracy theorist, uh, is fairly pejorative. Because I think of uh, the sort of thing that, you know, is about to follow as pretty much a conspiracy in my book. But you, you get to make the call. Wrote the reader. Before the Second World War, nearly every major city in the U.S. had a network of low-polluting public transportation, streetcars, electric trains, or trolleys. Los Angeles, for example, had the largest electric train system in the world. It linked the 56 towns of greater L.A. and carried 80 million passengers a year. Now, I always knew they had a good trolley system in L.A., but I didn't know it was that extensive. Anyway, said the article, many public transit systems around the country were owned by electric companies. They'd been built in the years before most homes were wired for electricity to increase sales of electric power. But in the mid-1930s, Congress began breaking up the utility monopolies. In 1935, it passed antitrust laws that forced them to sell their mass transit holdings. 
As it worked out, these mass transit companies were put up for sale at a time when the nation's automakers were looking for ways to increase their sales. Wrote Russell Mobicker in his book, Corporate Crime and Violence, the auto industry was in a vulnerable position. It was not clear that the four-wheeled buggy would become the transportation of method of choice for a nation in the midst of its worst economic depression. But the industry knew that without efficient rail systems, city dwellers around the country would be forced to find alternative means of transportation. So General Motors, determined to sell more cars and buses, decided to destroy the rail systems. In 1932, GM formed a holding company called United Cities Motor Transit, UCMT. Via UCMT, the automakers bought three mass transit companies, converted them to buses, and sold them back to local companies with the stipulation that they buy only GM buses in the future. This worked in Michigan, but when GM tried to use the same technique in Portland, Oregon, it ran into trouble. The American Transit Association publicly exposed GM's plan, and it was forced to dismantle UCMT. So GM decided to skip these small companies and to attack New York's trolley system, which was America's largest. GM then got some allies with an existing bus company, the Omnibus Corporation, and in 18 months managed to dismantle New York's massive public transportation system. It then took on the rest of the country. Using a small Illinois bus company as a front, it began buying up dozens of mass transit companies. Wrote journalist Jonathan Quitney, tracks were literally torn out of the ground, sometimes overnight. Overhead power lines were dismantled and valuable off-street rights-of-way were sold. In East St. Louis, for example, the transition from streetcars to buses took less than 24 hours. As the front company got bigger, GM transformed it into a holding company called National City Lines, Inc., and approached other companies that would also benefit from the destruction of electric transit. By 1937, Greyhound Bus Lines the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company, Mack Manufacturing, Standard Oil of California, and Phillips Petroleum had also joined up, investing $10 million. NCL finished dismantling transit companies after the end of World War II. By the time it was done, it had eliminated lines carrying hundreds of millions of passengers in more than 45 cities, including New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, St. Louis, Oakland, Salt Lake City, and Los Angeles. By 1955, only 5,000 streetcars remained nationwide out of a fleet that had numbered 40,000 in 1936. So let's go back to that initial question. Is this a conspiracy? Well, some folks in the government thought so. In 1949, GM and the other conspirators were indicted for violating antitrust laws. They defended themselves by claiming that their investments in the enterprise were small and that they had exerted no managerial control over national city lines. They claimed they'd put money into NCL because transit lines were a good investment. But internal documents showed they knew they were going to lose money. The real profits would come later. And for companies that thought they weren't doing anything wrong, they were awfully secretive about their involvement with NCL. For example, Standard Oil of California invested its money through two other companies because a company official later admitted we didn't want to be criticized. Firestone channeled its investments through two of its employees who posed as independent investors. The investigation showed that all NCL was supposed to be an independent company. The agreements under which the conspirators provided money specified that all buses, tires, and petroleum products had to be purchased from the companies that own stock 
in national city lines. Once uh, all of America's light rail systems were gone, big business got out of the transit business. GM, Standard Oil, Firestone, Phillips, Mack, and Greyhound all dumped their stocks. So we look at, when we look at the investment that's been required all across the United States to reestablish light rail lines, be it here in Sacramento or BART in the Bay Area or the Metro line in Washington, D.C., uh, well, it didn't have to be that way. This, to me, is an example of a real-life conspiracy. And in fact, the federal courts believe that was the case as well. In the end, General Motors, National City Lines, Firestone Tire and Rubber, Phillips Petroleum, Mack Manufacturing, and Standard Oil of California were all convicted of violating the Sherman Antitrust Act. So I didn't want you to think there wasn't any justice in all of this. Because when it was all said and done, each of those companies was fined $5,000. And the CEOs, they got nailed too. Company officials found guilty were each fined a dollar. Anyway, we need more rail, uh, rail lines in this country. There's talk about building them. And uh, Tom Philp actually wrote a nice little editorial in the Sacramento Bee about Amtrak a while back. We've been meaning to get to Tom Philp on this program for a while. We're going to have to try a little bit harder. At any rate, let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Radio Parallax. 